Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Begin transmission in three, two, one. This is Naked Astronomy. Each month, I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. I'm Greg Jackson. Welcome, and of course, a belated Happy New Year. With it being the new year and all, I thought, hey, what better way to start or restart this podcast than at the beginning of time? This month, I'm chatting to philosophers and astrophysicists about the latest cosmic quandaries in relation to time. How can time travel both backwards and forwards? Is there such thing as a beginning? Or is this just the invention of sci-fi? First off, a little disclaimer. I have to admit, I'm not a cosmologist, a physicist or an astrophysicist. I come to this quite ignorant to the whimsical ways of astronomy. Every month, I'll be journeying into the cosmos to find out about, ultimately, how the universe we know came to be and what its fate will be. Okay, disclaimer over. Let's move on to this cosmic quandary that is the beginning of time. there's such a thing? It's a very good question. Many cosmologists now think that there is. That's Professor Hugh Price, Bertrand Russell philosopher at Cambridge University, and his research spans vast areas of science and metaphysics, including the philosophy of time. This view goes back to the discovery that the universe is expanding, discovery made in the 1920s, logical implication of that is that there must have been a time when it was at minimum size, and that's what we now think of as the Big Bang. And on most views, that's the beginning of time. There's literally nothing before that. People often find that puzzling and ask the question, well, what happened before the Big Bang? But really, what you have to understand is that the answer to that is nothing, because there is no before. And interestingly, that's an answer which was Um, understood hundreds of years before modern cosmology by the great early philosopher Augustine, who was a bishop in North Africa in, I think, the 4th century AD. And he was interested in the theological puzzle of what God was doing before he created the universe. And his answer to that was effectively the modern cosmological answer. Well, There was no before, because one of the things that God created was time itself, so you simply couldn't speak of what God was doing before he created the universe. And that's the same answer that you get in in the Big Bang model in modern cosmology. Basically, with the Big Bang, time was created. 
time didn't exist before the Big Bang because the Big Bang created time. Armed with the best physics in the 20th century, Albert Einstein came to a very similar conclusion with his theory of relativity. Consider time dilation. This is the effect of mass on time. Planet Earth's hefty mass warps time. It's why clocks on orbiting satellites run a little slower and why astronauts on the International Space Station return, having aged slightly less. So after six months, Tim Peake will be about 0.007 seconds younger than he would have been if he'd lived on Earth. You didn't have to be in space to experience it, though. You could go and stand next to, I don't know, a big building or Ayers Rock, and time would run more slowly than if you ran on some flat plain somewhere, like in Cambridge. That's really just an aside, but the big picture here is that space and time is warped by mass. And because at the Big Bang, all the mass in the universe would have been contained in something smaller than an atom, a singularity, it would have brought time to a standstill. Why then did time, and indeed this infinitely dense singularity, not stay like this forever? And what caused the universe to be in this state to begin with? As a child, it's built into us that there's a cause and an effect. Things just don't happen. Something makes them happen. Even when a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, trickery is suspected. Ergo, there must have been something before the singularity, right? So one answer you could give is that really physics tells us that there really is no such thing as causation. All we can do is just describe the great pattern as we find it in the world. And in that pattern, in the Big Bang models of cosmology, it turns out that there's a first moment in time, a kind of boundary in time, just as we might have a boundary in space. So that's one possibility. Another possibility might be that we look for causes in the future as well as in the past. And if that's the case, then um, the best answer to the question, what caused the Big Bang, would be to look to the future and say that As you run the story backwards, the Big Bang has to happen because of how things are at later times. How could you ever look to the future to discover what happened in the past? In the physics, there's really no preference between the past and the future at a fundamental level. In deterministic models, you can equally well run the equations in either direction and infer the past from the future just as you infer the future from the past. Now, for creatures like us who happen to have a memory which works backwards, so we we know more about the past than we do about the future. It's natural to have a notion of causation that we think of as running forwards. That's the direction in which we deliberate, in which we act on the world. But physics seems to suggest that that's much more a product of our viewpoint on the world than it is a product of anything that's fundamentally there in nature. If I get this right then, something I do tomorrow could have caused something that I did yesterday. Well, That way of looking at things from the point of view of physics is just as valid as the ordinary way of looking at things. Now, for many purposes, it's much better to look at things from a human point of view than from the point of view of fundamental physics. And from a human point of view, the useful notion of causation is the one that does work forwards. That's the one when we're needing, when we're deliberating about, you know, what to have for lunch or something and thinking about what the effects in the afternoon might be. But physics doesn't care about that sort of thing. But should it? 
The cause, by definition, is the one that precedes the effect. Plus then there's the whole time thing, the future causing things in the past. To me, this just seems, well, if not weird, clumsy, ad hoc, because I experience time moving forward. We don't grow young and eggs don't unscramble. But it's not just me and you who experience time moving forward. It's everywhere we look. The universe is expanding, not contracting. Stars burn up their hydrogen rather than create it, and radioactive atoms decay, not reassemble. Time seems to have this clear and irreversible direction, and this is what an astrophysicist called Arthur Eddington coined as the time's arrow. It's a big problem in physics because all the laws of physics dictate that time works both ways, backwards and forwards, but actually everything we observe, it only moves in one direction, forward. And so physicists have been grappling with this conundrum for over a hundred years. That is until just recently. If we are right, it may be that we have succeeded in solving one of the really outstanding problems in physics. Julian Barber, physicist at Oxford University. Well, first of all, it was a publication with two of my collaborators, Tim Kovslovsky and Flavio Mercati. And we attack the problem that is called, well, it's the origin of the arrow of time. And this has been a great problem for 120 years or so since the time of the great Austrian physicist Ludwig Boltzmann. And that's when he did some work on the second law of thermodynamics, right? That's right. It's very unsatisfactory. The second law of thermodynamics refers to entropy and how disordered the universe is becoming. At the beginning, the universe was really ordered. Everything was smushed together into something smaller than the atom. But as the universe expanded, everything became a bit more complex and disorganised with the advent of galaxies, stars, planets, asteroids and even humans being added to the mix. The second law of thermodynamics just says that things will get more chaotic as time moves forward, from low entropy to high. The problem is this. Our laws of physics just can't make low entropy conditions that we need for the thermodynamic arrow of time. They just don't work unless you add a series of messy equations to the end. And actually scientists don't like this. And that's because it links to the idea that there'll one day be a theory of everything. One simple equation that explains, well, everything. And this special initial messy condition of low entropy just doesn't fit the mould. And so it's no wonder that Julian Barber and many other physicists find this all just a bit troublesome. It's very unsatisfactory that we have a wonderful law of nature, particularly gravity, that we seem to have to add, in addition, very special initial conditions to get what the universe looks like. Because the universe is very special. We have these processes which all seem to point in the same direction. There's this extraordinary unidirectionality. All these arrows all pointing in the same direction. It seems very unsatisfactory that we can't get that behavior without making some ad hoc very special assumption. So you've built a model that could potentially overcome this idea of having very special initial conditions? Yes, that, that's, that's what we've done. Now, this is only a first step, but it, it, it seems to be completely new. And the remarkable thing is, all we've done is really actually look at dear old Newton's law of gravity. 
They got a supercomputer and repeatedly simulated what a thousand particles would do under the laws of Newton's gravity, not thermodynamics. And guess what? They evolve into a low-complexity state, roughly analogous to the Big Bang. Thus, the sheer force of gravity, not thermodynamics, is what draws the bowstring of time's arrow. What we, have, what we have thereby shown is that in every single solution of Newton's theory, this actually happens. There is an arrow of time. It is nothing whatever to do with a special condition because no special conditions have been imposed. Genuinely does have the potential to change the whole way we think about this problem of the arrow of time. That's all very well and good. But what's this got to do with the beginning of time, I hear you ask? Well, firstly, it means that two futures evolve from one past. Well, effectively, the, the solution divides into, into two universes, really. They are qualitatively similar, but they are quantitatively different. So you and I wouldn't be talking to each other in, in the other universe. We're, we're, you and I are on this side of that central region. Uh, there could be intelligent beings, I hope we're intelligent, on the other side of that central region, talking to each other about the mystery of the arrow of time. That's not all. If it holds true, then the Big Bang wouldn't be the cosmic beginning of time, but rather a phase in a timeless and eternal universe, i.e. there is no beginning of time. But, uh, of course, I have to emphasise this is still very much early days. This is just a simple model. Basically, if we're in, going in the right direction, we may be able to explain much more just on the basis of the law without adding any additional ingredients like a special initial condition followed by inflation and special types of matter and things like that. Now, this is just a hope at the moment, but it, it's, an, it's an indication that we might be going in the right direction, in which case it, it could be a very big advance and it could lead to quite new ways of looking and thinking about the universe. One step closer to understanding those very special conditions in which the Big Bang began on naked astronomy. Julian Barber there from the University of Oxford. The idea that there is no beginning of time, time is infinite, is not an entirely new idea. But all the same, the idea of infinite is something I find hard to grapple with. Philosopher Hugh Price again. Well, there are cosmologists who think that the Big Bang wasn't really the beginning, that before the Big Bang there were other cycles, perhaps cycles of expansion and contraction. And in that case, there is something that happened before the Big Bang. There was something like a, a big crunch when all the matter in some previous cycle of the universe, and then instead of forming what physicists call a singularity, what happened was that instead of collapsing like that, the matter bounced. And so people talk about the big bounce rather than the big bang. 
In this view, one could talk of a big crunch, the universe collapsing or recollapsing back into a singularity and forming another universe, starting with another Big Bang. I tried to think of a story or an analogy to explain this, but I don't think there's really anything like this in existence. Hugh, on the other hand, had a good one to hand. Well, if you imagine a, a spring oscillating, so it's expanding and contracting, expanding. So in these models, the long-term history of the universe is something like that. It's a, it's a, it's a cycle of bounces and collapses. So then that means time is infinite and there is no beginning of time if it's continually contracting and expanding, no? Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, regarded by some people as an attraction of, of that model, that you don't have a moment in time which is distinguished by being the first one. But that brings us back round to this question. What would have caused the first one? The way I I think of it, right, is like a a series of dominoes going out in a spiral effect and then knocking and they're going round and round and round and continuing. There's an infinite number of dominoes. I think what I find hard to grapple with is that there has to be a beginning point at some point. Um, But that just might be another flaw of my human nature. Well, yes, it, it could be just one of these things that our human notion of causation leads us to expect but something which, once we've reconciled ourselves to the idea that there's no causation in fundamental physics, we, we, we should just recognise that we can live without the idea of, of first causes. The message I'm taking away is either you believe in the Big Bang and that before the singularity there was no such thing as time, that, that massive expansion, that is when time was created, or you believe in the Big Bounce and that means time was infinite and there is no beginning of time. Yeah, I think those are the the two basic options. But, of course, one of the nice things about science in general and physics in particular is that it has a a delightful way of coming up with new options, so we can't be absolutely sure that something else won't come along. Which side of the bracket do you fall on? In some ways, I think the no-beginning one would be more interesting. One of the reasons it would be more interesting is because it leads to a version of a so-called multiverse view, a view in which what we regard as our universe, roughly speaking, the observable universe, is only a tiny bit of something much, much bigger. That's a little bit hard to process, because if the universe is infinite, then there's something to be said for the idea that all possibilities happen infinitely often. So that somewhere in that infinite chain of of bounces, there'd be another universe in which people just like us would be having a conversation very much like this, only it would end in some slightly different way. First, causes firmly-ish expelled from my mind, I realised that my quest to understand whether there was indeed a beginning of time or not, I needed to find out more about which theory matches the current cosmological observations. Who am I? Dr. Roberto Trotta, Imperial College of London. Roberto is a theoretical cosmologist. I'm hoping he might be able to unpick some of the things that Hugh highlighted, like multiple universes, time being infinite, and so on and so forth. Those, you know, little things. We know that the universe is expanding uh, with time because if we, if we look around us with a telescope and we look at distant galaxies, we see most of those distant galaxies moving away from us because the very fabric of space-time is being stretched in all directions at the same time. But then, if this is the case now, if we wind back that movie and we look at it, going backwards in time, then you'll see that all galaxies, if we go back in time, uh, were closer and closer together in the past. And if we go back further enough, all galaxies were heaped up in one point. 
and that point we call the Big Bang, time zero, a singularity. So are there any theories that might suggest what was before this singularity or how this singularity came to be? Speculative theories, yes. Uh, There are different ways of thinking about how the Big Bang came about. One of the possibilities is that the Big Bang wasn't actually a Big Bang, but merely was the bouncing off of a previous phase in the history of the universe. So instead of thinking of time beginning with the Big Bang, we can think that there was more of the same. A previous universe would be re-collapsing into a big crunch, which is sort of the reverse of a Big Bang. And then when it gets to be close to a singularity, it would bounce back out again, and that we would experience as our own Big Bang. And so this is the picture of a cyclic universe that forever bounces. This picture is actually in doubt today because we now know that our universe is not going to recollapse in the future. It is actually going to expand forever at an ever-accelerating rate. That's How do we know that? Sorry, how do we know that our universe isn't going to recollapse? And, and that's, that's, a, that's because of dark energy. 70% of our universe is made of a, an unknown type of force or energy that we call dark energy, uh, whose main impact on the universe is to make the expansion of the universe accelerate with time. So not only the universe is growing with time today, it's growing at an ever-accelerating speed. And it will not recollapse. So it will not be a big crunch that will end our universe, the end or in the far future, the end of our universe will be a state of darkness where all the galaxies will have turned off, all the matter will have been sucked into black holes, and the universe will be a very cold, very dark, very boring place. A slightly scary space. Sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. Yes, but it's, it's about 200 billion years in the future, so there is nothing to worry about <laughs> for our immediate futures. So that theory is in doubt. What other theories might there be that have more support Some ideas are rather different. They postulate the existence of parallel universes, effectively. So our universe is made of uh, three space dimensions and one time dimension. So it's a four-dimensional universe that we experience. But what if there were additional dimensions that we cannot actually penetrate ourselves, but that exist perhaps just a fraction of a millimeter away from our reality, a very sci-fi concept, that we can actually uh, make a little bit more visible and a little bit more tangible with a simple analogy using some lasagna, actually. So why don't we go over and uh, put those lasagna in the oven and then we'll uh, have a a little bit of an analogy and a tasty one to, to the early universe and what those speculative parallel universes might look like. Great, I'm hungry already. Okay. Let's give our parallel universes four minutes. So whilst this is quickly heating up, this is to demonstrate the various parallel universes. You've got layers of vegetable, because this is a vegetarian lasagna, I noticed. And then you've got the layers of pasta and cheese. So what signifies what here? Okay, so we have uh, lasagna exactly made of layers of pasta. And the layers of pasta are going to symbolise and represent different parallel universes, if you like. So our own universe will be one of the layers and then separated by something, which in this case is the vegetable filling, you'll have other layers which are just universes just like us, but they are separated from us across a fifth dimension. And that, that's the dimension where the stuffing resides. In, in cosmology, we call it the bulk. 
And then you have all, all those parallel universes stacked on top of each other, and we call those parallel universes, which are the lasagna layers, the, the pasta layers, we call them brains. Ah, okay, I see, I see. So when this comes out, I'm quite intrigued. What are you going to do with it? Oh, we're just gonna no, we're just gonna look at it, and then we're just going to try and make this big bang happen as mashing together those two parallel universes and see what happens. So we're gonna make an explosion with a lasagna. Yes, a messy one, <laughs> I'm afraid. Ah, here we go. They are ready. Hmm. Oops. So now we are gonna cut the lasagna in the middle to reveal nicely our parallel universes. Let's see, ah yes, we can see there are about four or five parallel universes in it. And so I'm, I'm just picking out the, the top layer of the lasagna. So this, this brain here is gonna be our universe. If I peel back the, the top layer of the lasagna, I'm gonna reveal another parallel universe just below it. That's our other lasagna pasta sheet. And now the idea is that if we have gravity, leaking through the two lasagna layers, the two pasta layers will be smashed together. They will be attracted one to the other, and when they hit like this, they're going to splash all the sauce out, and this is going to be the Big Bang, effectively. We will describe it as the birth of our universe, but in reality what it is, it's just two pasta layers in the high-dimensional universe smashing together. So is that how each parallel universe could be created, this sort of seeping of gravity through, and that means there could be, what, infinite Big Bangs and then fall equal parallel universes. That's right. Some people describe them as a gas of brains, so there are so, as many brain universes as atoms in a room. And these other universes, are they like ours? We don't know. That's a very good question. They could be very different from our own universe. They could have different laws of physics in them or different properties. Certainly, that's a matter of speculation. And there are, there are some ideas that actually say that those other universes ought to be very different from ours. Is there any way that we'd ever be able to tell or is there any evidence that we might be able to gather that might support this theory? Well, I have a, another little experiment prepared in the kitchen that might actually help us understand how we might be able to tell, if not the existence of parallel universes of this kind, the existence of other universes that have uh, potentially smashed into our own universe. So our chocolate balls are going to be, well, one of them is going to be our universe and another one is going to represent another universe. But now what we're going to do... I got some double cream here. I'm gonna take the spherical balls, oops, and dip them. <laughs> without not drop them. Not drop them. Somehow I was under the impression that the double cream would make them float. I think you might have to whisk it to get that effect. Yeah, yes. Well, very good point. But okay, perfect. Now I've coated the two universes in cream. It's all white. So this coat of white cream now represents the cosmic microwave background. That's to say the relic radiation of the Big Bang. That's a luminous echo of the Big Bang itself that we can pick up with our telescopes and satellites and we can observe today on Earth 13.7 billion years later. I also sprinkle them with uh, powdered chocolate. And the chocolate powder here represents the little irregularities in the relic radiation from the Big Bang. Um, coming from quantum fluctuations at the singularity itself. I'm going to now carefully smash those universes together. And so you can see here, 
on the side where they've touched, there is a little bit of a, of a spot in the cream that's been left over by... Oh, uh, yeah, the... just like a lighter patch almost. That's right, that's right, that's right, again here. Where the sort of the chocolate powder's rubbed off, you've got the cream underneath and that's what's left, right? That's right, exactly right. And, and this is a sort of a bruise that's left over from the earlier collision of those... Uh, different universes, later on we can still potentially pick up this bruise that has been generated by the collision very early on near the singularity. And if we can do so, then perhaps, just perhaps, we can find evidence that that collision happened in the very beginning of time. How might we be able to detect that tiny little white spot of cream? That's a challenging task because, of course, there are many, many other effects that will imprint different kinds of spots and spot patterns onto this luminous echo. So it's a statistical problem, effectively. It's about analyzing those spots that we see on the sky, looking for the potential bruise left over by collision early on. But, of course, we don't know exactly what we're looking for. We don't know how many bruises there are, what size they are, uh, which position they are on the sky. All of those things are completely unknown. So it's really like a search, search of a needle in a haystack. Uh, we know what, what a signature could look like, but then there are many different possibilities for it. So we have to look for all of them in a statistical fashion and see if something comes up. And in this case, it could be a hint that something like that has happened in the past. I'm picking up from you that perhaps then the favoured theory might be the parallel universe scenario because it's actually something that we can potentially test and see. In terms of testability, it's, it's promising in that if it leaves signatures that we can pick up, even just in, in principle, maybe not today, not with today's technology, but if it can be probed in principle, then it becomes a testable theory and then it becomes an interesting one in the sense that we can actually go out and, 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 and see if we can either reject it or, or positively confirm it. I think it's actually quite impressive to be able to say that we can now reconstruct with a high degree of fidelity the history of the universe from today, 13.7 billion years after the Big Bang, to the very beginning, some 10 to the minus 32 seconds after the Big Bang, with very high accuracy. So all that remains to be tested is this tiny sliver of time, 10 to the minus 32 seconds after the Big Bang. And so in a sense... Uh, the, the job of scientists at the forefront of research is always that of pushing back the the limit of the unknown. And so now we are really hitting the very hard, very deep, very fundamental questions. What existed before the Big Bang? It's still an open question. Perhaps nothing. Perhaps another universe or a different version of our own. This is one cosmological quandary that won't stay dead. In the decades following Einstein's death, the advent of quantum physics and a host of new theories resurrected questions about the pre-Big Bang universe. And no doubt, with the many more additional discoveries made in the next century, perhaps our ideas of pre-Big Bang might be very different. But in searching for the beginning of time, it's beginning to look as though there isn't such a thing. Some food for thought, and speaking of food, all this thinking has left me peckish, so I wouldn't mind tucking into that veggie lasagna. Many thanks to all my guests this week. That was Hugh Price, Julian Barber and Roberto Trotter, of course. And also to Anthony Baggett, who made the new theme tune for Naked Astronomy. We are forever indebted to you. The other music you heard on Naked Astronomy was from Orange Free Sounds and also Duke Deck. Next month on Naked Astronomy, join me, Greer Jackson, as I continue my adventures into space by tackling the Big Bang. Turns out, wasn't really that much of a Big Bang after all. Until next time, farewell. Farewell.